Chapter 1, let's pray. Father God, I just come before you this morning. We thank you for the freedom to gather in your name. We lift ourselves up to you, each one of us. Uh, allow us to, to just bathe in your word. Open our eyes and our ears, soften our hearts and open them up for what you have to say for us this morning, Father God. We just ask a blessing on Jackie as he teaches us this morning. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, Remain in Ephesus, that you may change, may charge some, that they may teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. Now the purpose of the commandment is love, from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, from which some, having strayed, having turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things that which they affirm. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for the righteous person, but for the lawless, the insubordinate, for the ungodly, and for the sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, and for manslayers for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a prosecutor, and an insolent man, I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason, I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe in him for everlasting life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, and to God alone, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwrecked, of whom Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme.
So this morning, we're going to begin the book of 1 Timothy. And one of the things that we want to kind of settle our minds on is this idea that Paul is calling for Timothy to fight for the faith. And he's given him instruction about Ephesus. Uh, Paul had sent him there. They had gone there together. And then Paul was directed to Macedonia. Timothy was left behind. And I'm sure Timothy is thinking he'd rather be anywhere else. You ever been somewhere where there are problems? No? You guys never experienced that? Been a part of something that starts good, but then, you know, somehow something always gets a little twisted and it gets uncomfortable and you got confrontation going on and things that need to be dealt with. And I'm sure Timothy is thinking, yeah, I'm cool. I'll go to Macedonia with you, Paul. Don't, don't, Don't leave me here. But Paul left him and sent him this letter that we're going to study to help prepare our hearts for what does it look like for us to fight for the faith, to hold to sound doctrine, to understand and recognize the way that that the word is supposed to work in our life. And prayerfully, we're going to be able to do that. He begins by Paul begins in this letter by by discussing his responsibility before God. He says in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. <clears throat> so I know that on TV and a few other places around the world, there are apostles. But um, you didn't take that title upon yourself. If you've been with us on Wednesday nights, we've been going through the prophets. And... <clears throat> The prophets were the same way. You didn't take the title upon yourself. Now, that doesn't mean you and I can't can't uh, respond in the gift of prophecy or that you and I can't be sent out. But the distinction is between the idea of a, a big A apostle, the title, the office, and what the word means. The word apostle means one who's sent out. So anytime we send somebody out, Jason right now in Kimberly doing a service this morning has been sent by this body to plant a church in Kimberly. He's fulfilling what the Bible said Jesus would give as gifts to the church of apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers. That's a little A. The big A apostle had authority. The big A apostle was somebody called specifically by God and his purpose was to deliver to us the word of God. There's nobody like that now. The word of God is finished. There's no big A apostles coming to tell us a new chapter, a new book, a new thing to study. But Paul was one. Now, how did Paul receive his calling? Do you remember? See, the calling of the apostles was definite. You had the 12. We remember those guys, right? Jesus came to him and said, what? Come follow me. Yeah, come follow me. And so they followed him for three years. And then what did he do at the end of his ministry? He sent them, right? I'm sending you. He sends out the disciples to go forward. And that is the word apostolos. They're being sent forth by God to take the things that Jesus taught to the people. Paul had his on the Damascus road, right? <clears throat> he's on his way to persecute Christian. He's, he's killing people, arresting people, stripping them from their families, taking away their things. You know, this is not a new thing, right? That has occurred among mankind. And so he's going around doing this and the Lord met him on the road, right? Bright light shines out of heaven. Paul falls on his face on the ground. 
and the Lord called him. This is how we get apostles. The church today confers upon one who is sent forth the idea you're being sent out, but they don't have the authority of Peter or Paul or Matthew, <laughs> John, right? It's not, it's not the same. It's not the same. Here, Paul is saying, I'm an apostle. Why? Because I chose to be an apostle? What's it say in the next part of the verse? I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus. How? By command of God. God commanded me. The Lord kind of interrupted his whole life, right? And came before him. He was commanded by God, our Savior, and Jesus Christ, our hope. So his authority, the authority comes from the fact that God interrupted his life and sent him as an apostle to the Gentiles. And his accountability is to whom? To the one who commanded him, right? So he is accountable to God. James 3.1 says this, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, for you know that we who teach will be judged with a stricter, uh, with a greater strictness. So the idea, right, that when we, when we receive um, the calling or we step out in faith and we begin to do things like teach, which is something everyone does. Every parent teaches their children, every... Sunday school teacher right now is uh, is teaching our children back in the back. Every youth leader or Bible study group or couples group that meets, everybody's teaching in some way. And the Word of God wants us to realize that we need to understand the responsibility therein. It's not a good thing if we misrepresent the Lord. There was a time, you guys remember a guy named Moses? Everybody remember Moses? He's leading the children of Israel. He's got his hands full. He's got two million people that he's walking around in the middle of the desert with who are complaining about everything. If you could imagine, if you've ever done anything with a group of people, just my family, when my kids were little and we'd get in the car to go do something, it was always some kind of major undertaking. You know, it was so simple. We're just going to go to the park. That's so complicated to get everybody in the car, to everybody together, and everybody now multiply by two million. And the people are upset because it's too hot. Some people are upset because it's too cold. Some people are upset because they're too thirsty. Some people are hungry. Can you imagine? Well, there was a point in Moses' ministry where the Lord said, The people are thirsty. Well, last time they were thirsty, Moses, I told you, go strike the rock. And you struck the rock, and water flo- flowed out of it. I want you to do that again, but this time I want you to speak to it. Just speak to the rock in the sight of the people. But Moses was mad because the people were complaining. So he walked over to the rock and he yelled out at the people, Must I give you water? And he turned around and he hit the rock with his staff. Well, God allowed water to come out for the people, but God said to Moses, What are you doing? Why did you represent me as angry at the people? I wasn't mad. So you won't go into the promised land. Don't misrepresent God. That's why it's so important when we come to the word of God that we do what the word challenges us with, to rightly divide the word of truth. That There's no shortcut. We live in a day of microwave. Like I want to microwave the brisket so it's done. 
But it's going to be like three days before it's done cooking. So everybody I was going to feed brisket to tonight, you're getting pizza. I don't know what to tell you. So we live in a microwave world, right? We want to microwave it. We want to come to the Word of God and push a microwave and, and have all understanding in, you know, 30 seconds or less. And that's not how it works. The Word of God is meditative literature. It's designed and written in a style that requires us to meditate, to chew on it, to think about it, to digest it, to take our time. Low and slow, right? To take our time going through the Word and to be men and women teachers who might share the truth of God's Word, understanding our accountability before God. Now, we're not apostles, so we don't get to tell you uh, uh, what something means unless the Bible tells us that's what it means. But we do have an opportunity to rightly divide the word of truth and deliver that. So Paul's saying, here's my, here's my authority. I'm an apostle. Here's my accountability. I'm accountable to God. Who's the letter to? He says to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Now, Paul uses this phrase twice in Second uh, Timothy 1-2. He again calls Timothy, my beloved child. This, the idea is when Paul was in his first missionary journey, he went to a place called Iconium and Lystra. You, got, you guys know the names? You'll remember the story. He goes into these places and he's preaching and the people are and, and, and healing and doing things. And the people are like, wow, you guys are like gods. And Paul's like, whoa, no. We're not gods. We're here to tell you about Jesus Christ. And so the people on one hand are telling them how great they are and wanting to worship them. And on the other hand, they get mad, drag them outside the city and stone them and leave them for dead. Apparently there was a young man who was being brought up in the word of God who saw it all. His grandma and his mom, they, they had been out there. And this young man, his name was Timothy. And when Paul was left for dead outside the city. Scripture tells us that he got back up. So you guys, you guys have had bad days at work, right? Paul had a bad day. He was stoned, which means everybody in the town hit him with a rock. That qualifies as a bad day. Did their best to kill him. Probably, maybe he was dead. I don't know. But, but he got up and he dusted himself off. And where did he go? Right back in that city. And so, you know, that thus begins a relationship between Paul and Timothy. And Timothy gets, gets stoked about the reality that here's a guy who has faced these incredible things, but doesn't quit and he doesn't turn away. So this is real. This is sincere. This is genuine faith, not the stories that people tell. This is the real deal. So, so Timothy comes to faith through his ministry. And so Paul, when he writes to Timothy and Titus, he changes his greeting. When he writes to the church, he says, grace and peace to you. When he writes to Timothy and Titus, his two guys that he's raising up, he also asks for them to receive mercy. It says, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Grace, getting what we don't deserve. God's unmerited favor. Mercy, that's not getting what we do deserve. And peace, peace is what happens when God binds all of our broken pieces together again 
when God, through his work of atonement, makes us whole. So Paul, writing to Timothy, telling him about the authority that he has and the accountability that we have, he says, okay, here's the problem, Timothy, I left you there because there's got to be some confrontations. And it seems like oftentimes in the early days of the church, there was this confrontation between grace and the law. Grace and the law were pretty frequently butting heads. And they're, they ought not to be butting heads because ultimately they are both um, part and parcel of the same uh, reality of how God brings us to salvation. How salvation is worked into our lives. And so this is what he says in verse 3. As I urged you, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So there is the established faith, right? That, that thing that Jesus taught. When Jesus gave the great commission, right? He said, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And listen to this part, teach them the things I taught you. So we hold fast to the doctrine that Jesus Christ delivered once for all for the salvation of the saints to the apostles. And they delivered that to the church. And they pass that down to us through their writings so that we are able to hold fast to that sound doctrine. We want to hold fast, not to teach a different doctrine. Verse 4 says, not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promotes speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. A long time ago, I taught Chronicles. I don't know how long it's been because it takes me like two years to do a book. <clears throat> Timothy won't take that long, don't worry. Six months we'll be done with Timothy for sure. But, uh, but uh, it takes me a long time. So a long time ago, I did, I did first and second Chronicles. And I had this little boast. I am going to teach every verse in the Bible. You know what the first nine chapters are of First Chronicles? One giant long genealogy. And, and if I do a chapter a week, that's nine weeks of genealogies. How many people you think are going to come sit down and listen to me do that? So I did week one, pulled out some nuggets, you know, that was cool. Week two, did it again, less nuggets, week two. Week three, less people. we can spend a lot of now there there are there's a i don't i don't mean to say that those aren't important there's actually some really cool things that we can find in the genealogies but there there comes a point can you imagine arguing and fighting over genealogies and what the i mean ultimately the purpose of the genealogies is to point that to point out the reality that jesus christ has two lines it goes back to um david Two different ways, one through his mother, one through his father. One is his uh, Jewish right to be a Jew, right? That comes through mom. And the right to be king comes through dad. Two different lines go back. Mary's way went through Jeconiah. He had a curse. And, and Joseph's way went to the right side of the, of the family of David. So Jesus Christ actually has the authority to say he's king by the line of David. And then all of those things come back and they show us the story, right? Of Adam and Eve, all the way through to Abram, all the way through to Messiah. And then all of a sudden genealogy stop, right? 
We don't see a lot of genealogies in the New Testament. We got a couple, right, pointing to Jesus, and, and that's it. Why? Because that, that's what their purpose was. Now Christ has come. There, there's no genealogy. There's not somebody else coming. That's it. He's been. He's here. He's with us. But he's saying these group, they devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies to argue about things primarily uh, from the Old Testament, as we'll see in a moment, which promotes speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Now, we have a stewardship from God by faith. What was that stewardship? He's going to tell us in verse 11. But that stewardship is to take care of the gospel that Jesus Christ delivered to us. Take care of the gospel. Take care of the gospel. Take care of the gospel. That's our focus, to take care, to to uh, be a good steward of what the Lord God has given to us, which is by faith. That word, by faith, is a word, okonomia. Okonomia has this idea within it of the, uh, the order of life. Jesus Christ has delivered to us a stewardship about the order of life, how our life fits together, right? Because because most of us before Christ, my my life, I could I could put the pieces together and do the things you're supposed to do. You know, have a job, make a living, get a house, get married, have a family, whatever whatever the things are that we that we think are are the normal parts of an ordered life. But even in all that order, it was not it wasn't right. Something's gone. Something's not there. There's a missing. Peace, there's a missing part and your heart knows it and your mind knows it and your life knows it and everything within you is saying something's not here. And Jesus Christ, he's that, he's that missing piece. He's the one who says, here's the order of life. This is how all the pieces come together. This is how it will finally, once and for all, make sense. So we want to see our life ordered together and following good, solid stewardship and not spending our time being distracted by things that aren't impacting the gospel of Christ. The gospel that the Lord has laid out for us. In chapter 6 of 1 Timothy uh, speaking of some of these false teachers, he's going to say he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction among people who are depraved in mind, deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now that's his issue. The motivation behind some of the false teachers, right? Godliness is a means of gain. This is how the the nation of Israel made a living up until the time Christ came. How many people you think stood outside of the temple with their special temple approved sacrifice? Where God's heart was that when people brought a sacrifice to the Lord, they brought it from their own flock. And if your flock wasn't that great, you just brought the best you had. But then all of a sudden it became about what you could buy. So now you're no longer, it's no longer something that's impacting my life. It's not really about my life. It's about, you know, I just got to drop a 20. I'll just bring a 20, drop a 20, pick up a a lamb pre-approved, you know, has no tie to me. It's not part of my family. My kids have never played with it. It has nothing to do with us. And they turned... They turned what the Lord was doing to try to teach his people and draw his people to himself into a, a, a point of monetary gain. So everybody was in the, everybody's finger was in the pie. 
One guy made you exchange money so because you couldn't use your normal money, so you have to have temple money. And then the other guy, he'd take the, the sheep some people brought, and he'd say, that's not good enough, give it to me. And then go change your money, and then come back and sell them the, the lamb back to go make a sacrifice. Now it's approved. It all became about gain, and it was all tied Every bit of it was tied to producing a righteousness yourself that made you right before God by what you could do. And that's, that's, that's still around. We still spend a lot of time and a lot of effort trying to produce a righteousness that, that we churn up on ourselves based on what we did or what we bought. Or, or how we look or what have you. And, and the Lord is calling us not to that. He's calling us to good stewardship of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which didn't sound like that, right? That's why it's so shocking in view of the Pharisees. The Pharisees who could walk around and say, Hey, you should do this, you should do this, you should do this. Be like us. What did Jesus tell them they were? Whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. You look good on the outside. You got all the self-righteous accoutrements. They're all around you. Oh, it's great. You look marvelous. And everybody else would look at him and say, righteousness, righteousness, righteousness. But Jesus looked at him and said, dead men's bones. You're not right. Paul says we need to hold fast to this gospel that Jesus Christ brought. For what purpose? What is our aim? If their aim is financial gain, right? If their aim is this attitude, what's our aim? Verse 5, the aim of our charge is love. That issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So what is the goal? He's saying the goal is that what would proceed out of a life that is actually and honestly truly affected by Jesus Christ is love. Love is what is produced. Love from what? Love that issues out of a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. This is our goal. This is why we hold fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He said, they will know you are my disciples by the way you love each other. He's saying love is what's going to be expressed out of the reality that the gospel has impacted your life. When what we believe is joined with what we do, right? Do we get it? If what I believe, if I say I believe in Jesus Christ and I put my faith and trust in him and then that begins to affect my life and my life and what I say and what I do begin to line up. And what issues forth out of that is love. Romans 5 lays out that the love of God is poured out in our life through the Holy Spirit. So we want to we want to see this love and this love, this genuine reality of a changed life that occurs from someone who's holding fast to the true gospel, this genuine love that flows out of a pure heart. 2 Timothy 2:22 says, "So flee youthful passion and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace listen along with those who call on the lord from a pure heart so what's he saying to timothy saying timothy here's what here's what someone who has a pure heart does he pursues righteousness faith love and peace he pursues righteousness faith love and peace he turns away from right whenever we come to christ there is a repentance a turning away from the old and a walking into the new and what's the new pursuing righteousness faith love peace That's our pursuit. That's what we're after. 
What is it? It comes out of a pure heart. And what else? A good conscience. A good conscience. Romans two fifteen and 16 say, They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts either accuse or excuse them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. The Bible twice, two, or actually several times, uses this idea of our conscience judging. Let me give you a simple way that that works. We don't need the Bible to, to find someone guilty before God. God says it like this. Have you ever done what your conscience told you not to do? Is there anybody who can say, oh, no, I've never done that. I've never had my conscience. I'm just churning within me to say, don't do this. Don't do it. Don't do this. Don't do this. And I did it anyway. Now, how are you going to stand not guilty before the Lord? He says, I don't need a law. Your conscience convicts you. Your conscience convicts you. What's he saying here? We want to see love coming from a pure heart and out of a good conscience. There's two words God uses in terms of conscience with believers. He uses these two words, good and clear. Paul would say, I have a good conscience or a clear conscience, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. For unbelievers, he uses two other words. For people who reject the truth of the gospel, he uses the word seared or corrupt. So either you have a seared and corrupt conscience because you've rejected the truth of God's word, or you have a good or a clear conscience because you've received it. You have a seared uh, conscience when you think you can make yourself right. I just told you your conscience will convict you, right? Your conscience will say, yep, I've done wrong. How would we stand before the judge in that case? But if we receive the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we recognize that it's not a thing that I do, it's something that Jesus Christ did. It's something he imputes upon me. He kept the law, and he imputes the keeping of the law upon me. He covers me with his righteousness. That's how I'm made right before God. If we understand that, you have a good conscience. Love springing forth out of a pure heart, And from a good conscience. And finally, out of sincere faith. The word for sincere faith is the word anhypocritos. Anhypocritos. An is the the, the negative. So if you wanted to say without, you would put ah before it. Without. Anhypocritos. Without hypocrisy. A hypocrite was somebody who play acted, who pretended, who fake it till you make it kind of an idea. And what he's saying is, no, this faith isn't like that. This faith isn't fake. This faith is real. This faith is real. It's without hypocrisy. It's sincere. It's truthful. It's honest. Teach what is true and correct what is false. This is the charge that Paul is giving to Timothy. He's saying, look, you, you need to correct these things. Some of these guys, they're teaching things that aren't right doctrine. They're focusing on myths and genealogies and promoting speculations rather than keeping the stewardship, which is faith in Jesus Christ that makes us righteous. 
It's a relationship with him that purges our sin, not our own abilities. It's coming from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Because he says in verse 6, look, certain persons by swerving from these have wandered into vain discussion. Desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So certain persons have swerved from the reality that you are made righteous through Jesus Christ, which is everywhere throughout the scripture. Everywhere. The idea that it's Jesus Christ who who imputes to me righteousness. How did Abram become righteous? Because Abram was a keeper of the law? Well, you got a problem. Abram is before the law, right? That's Genesis 12. The law doesn't come till Exodus 20, so we got a long time to go. What are we going to do? I don't know how that would work. How is it that Abraham is made justified before God? What does the Bible say? The Bible tells us that Abram believed God and it was imputed to him for righteousness. Paul builds on that idea in Galatians chapter 4, that it is by faith. Habakkuk, who is looking over (coughs) the wreck of society, kind of like you and I can do today, right? If we look over our nation, it's amazing to me, you know, and some of you even more so because, to be honest, you're older than me. But most of us can look over and we can say, man, it's crazy how we got here because our world, if, if you remember what, like when you were a kid, you know, like I was a, I was a kid in the late sixties and all through the seventies and there was a lot of messed up stuff. I'm not saying things weren't messed up, but I I look at how life was then and how life is now, and I'm like, whoa, we're like, it's like watching a really slow NASCAR wreck happen. You know, like in slow motion, only the slow motion has been like 50 years, been 50 years of of this wreck coming. And, And I'm pretty sure it can only go one place. But as we look over society and where society has gone and what society, what's happening in society and what's, what's going on in it and what's, what is, um, pulling our, our mind from, we, we, we certainly cannot come up with the, with the idea that we're going to fix ourselves. We can't come up with the idea that if if we're just going to get it right, If we just keep cutting out people, because that's what we're good at, right? We just pick on somebody and we say, well, these people are the bad people. So let's get rid of them. So, so maybe for you, it's all the Muslims. We cut out all the Muslims. We get rid of all the Muslims. You didn't do nothing because you're just as wicked. There's no group to cut out. We tried. Germany looked around and said, you know who we need to cut out? We need to cut out the Jews. So they cut out the Jews. Did it get rid of the wickedness in Germany? No. It didn't. Does it ever? The Serbians and the Bosnians, they spent all their time killing each other until their nation ceased to exist as a single country. But did it get rid of the evil? No. We cannot make ourselves right. It's only through faith in what God has provided for us that we can be changed. Well, people say, well, Jackie, how can you say that? Look at church history. 
Well, this is exactly what I'm talking about. You want to look at church history? I look at church history. The church is vile. The church has spent just as much time killing people because the church likes to act just like the world. But the difference is the church is just a word. The true church are those who follow Jesus Christ. And everybody who runs around with the name church isn't doing that. Only those from whose life we see love being expressed through a pure heart and a good conscience. Right? Only those that we see the life coming through a sincere faith, a true faith. When the church has misrepresented the Lord, and I look at what the church has done and the things that have occurred in church history... I can't do nothing about it. All I can do is, is about me. And I can say this. They were not following the clear teachings of Jesus Christ. You can't follow the clear teachings of Jesus Christ and keep score how many Jews you can get on the end of your pike. Can you? How would you justify that? Well, you know how they did? They justified it by saying the church has given us authority to do whatever we need to do because we are in a holy War. So you do whatever you got to do to win because this is a holy war. By the way, that was occurring about the same time Muhammad was writing his Quran. You think he invented jihad? Look at history. The church invented jihad. Holy war. Holy war. Now, we look at that and we say, but Jackie, you say that, that Jesus Christ is supposed to change lives and love is supposed to usher out of a sincere heart and a, and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And I say, absolutely it is. So what does that tell you about what happened in the name of the church? That's not consistent with what Jesus Christ taught. So I would say that's not consistent with what the church is. Today, you could say like this, especially at Christmas time, right? You're out buying stuff and people are stealing your credit card. Anybody get their credit card stolen yet this year? Just one? What in the world? I must be living a bad life. So people, <coughs> people steal your credit card and then they pretend to be you and then they go somewhere and they buy a bunch of stuff, pretending they're you using your credit and then they want you to pay for it. Now, how do we get out of that situation? It's like this. We say, that wasn't me. That person just pretending to be me. There's a lot of people who stand up in the name of the church that aren't the church. Are you the church? There's a lot of people who stood up and did horrific things in the name of the church. But I'm saying that's not the church. They stole the name of Jesus Christ, but they didn't have it for real. Was not sincere. And we're going to see how to really understand how that is if we take a look. Look what he's saying here. He's saying, look, in verse 8, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Right? Well, that makes sense. The law is good if you use it right. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just. What did it say? The law is not laid down for who? The just. The law is not for the righteous. The law is not for the good. The law has no bearing on the righteous. The law has no bearing on the good. 
None. Zero. Zip. Zilch. Now, before you start thinking, oh, good. (laughs) There is none good. No, not one. This was the problem of the Pharisees. The Pharisees are like, oh, man, Jesus, we, we like some of the stuff you're saying, but hey, we're not broken. We're not sick. We're not sinful. And Jesus said, great. I only came for the sinner and for the broken and for the sick. So if you're not one of those things, Jesus Christ did not come for you. You don't need him because you are an anomaly. You're the only righteous person on their own. But the Bible says this. Look, as we go on, the law is for the lawless and the disobedient. The lawless and the disobedient. The lawless are those who uh, willingly violate. Remember where I said, have you ever done what your conscience told you not to do? Did you do that willingly or did somebody hold a gun to your head? That makes you lawless. And disobedient. You ever rejected God's authority? You ever hear him say something and say, oh, I, don't, I don't really think that's me. That's probably a cultural thing. It does not apply. Rejectors of God's authority. The lawless and the disobedient. For the ungodly and for sinners. For unholy and profane. For those who strike their fathers and mothers. For murderers, the sexually immoral. Men who practice homosexuality. Enslavers, liars, perjurers, and anything else. Whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. The law is for the broken. The law is for sinner. The law is for those who cannot attain to their own righteousness. That's who the law is for. So the law is good if you use it lawfully. If you use it properly. How is it that we are supposed to use the law? Well, here's what Paul's asserting. Paul's asserting that the law is not for Christians. What? Jackie, you just said it's for the broken and the sinner. and the, Yeah, it is. It is. It does a job. The law does a job. It points to the law keeper. It points to someone outside of me. It points to a savior. It points to a Messiah. The Bible tells in the book of Corinthians that he who knew no sin became your sin sacrifice that you might become what? The righteousness of God. The law is not for the righteous. Am I righteous on my own account? No. How am I righteous? Jesus Christ. He's the perfect keeper of the law. The law is my tutor. The law teaches me I need a savior. That's the lawful use of the law. I can also take the law and say, no, I can become righteous by upholding the law, by keeping the law, by doing the things that the law tells me to do, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow the, the commandments. Whatever list of commandments you want to make doesn't matter to me. It, um, we say, I'm going to follow these commands. I'm going to make myself righteous. When the Bible is telling us that we're made righteous by a relationship with Jesus Christ, by putting our faith and trust in him and acknowledging that we need him. Turning from my old, clinging to the new. Holding fast unto Jesus. Romans 3.19 says, Now we know 
that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable for God. So what is it that the law accomplishes? Makes everyone guilty before God, right? It shows it shows me I'm a lawbreaker. Shows me how many parts of the law you got to break before you broke the whole thing. The Bible says all you got to do is break one. Anybody ever told a lie? Good. We got it settled then, right? We're lawbreakers. We're lawbreakers and our, the lawbreaker is held accountable before God. <clears throat> For by works of the law, no human will be justified. Let me, let me try that again, just in case we didn't get it. For by works of the law, no human will be justified. Everybody understand? So it doesn't matter how much of the law you keep. None of the law is going to make you justified. Only your relationship and trust in Christ will make you justified. Now, Paul would say, well, so then should I just sin that grace may abound? Uh, no, because what we read earlier said what? A sincere faith means love pours out of a pure heart. And what was the other one? Good conscience. Right. We have this sincere relationship with Christ that brings forth love and a good conscience as we follow him. Can I in good conscience say I'm following Jesus while I wallow in my sin? I can't. I can't. If I can, one of the things isn't true. If I can wallow in my sin, if I can wallow in that place and something's not true, the law proves my sinfulness. Then in Galatians 3.24, it says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. So how long did the law watch over us? Till Jesus came. When Jesus came, now we have the ability to finally be righteous. Before, we just had the ability to know we needed a Savior. Now we know who the Savior is. The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified how? By faith. That's exactly what Habakkuk said when he looked over his world. Remember we said he looked over the world and our world's a giant mess. Habakkuk looked over it all and he says, Lord, I don't know what you're going to do. I don't understand what's happening. Why does evil prevail? Why are all these bad things going on? God, where are you, God? I don't understand this all. And in chapter 2, Habakkuk says this. I guess I'm just going to trust you. And he said something that Paul reiterates three times. So then the just shall live by faith. Trusting in him. Putting our hope in Christ. So we read this list of all these things. And, and so this, this list tells me, okay, I am one of those guys, right? I'm ungodly. I'm a sinner. I was unholy. I was profane. A striker of fathers and mothers and murderers and sexually immoral. And if you read that list and you think that's talking about other people, then you're missing it. It's talking about us. That's the ones Jesus Christ came for. Those people. Those people who do those things. How do I know? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Is there any way into the kingdom of God if I am unrighteous? None. You cannot get in. 
Then he gives us a list. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, not idolaters, not adulterers, not men who practice homosexuality, not thieves, not greedy, not drunkards, not revilers, not swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. None of those unrighteous people. We look at and we think, oh, those are terrible people. All those terrible people. Do you read the next line? And such were some of you. The point is that that's who we are until we come to Christ. And when we come to Christ, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, once we come to Christ, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. You have been changed, just like Paul was changed. You were changed, and if it's sincere, what comes out of your life is love from a pure heart and a good conscience because of your sincere faith. This is what flows out of the life. This is who we were. There's a bunch of guys there in Ephesus that are teaching, no, we gotta, we gotta hold to the law. We gotta, we gotta keep. Now, when I say that you don't gotta keep, I'm not saying you gotta break. You understand? When, when someone says you must keep the law in order to be righteous, they are establishing that you in keeping the law can earn your own righteousness. When I say you don't have to keep the law, that doesn't mean you should spend your life breaking it. Right? That's not the same thing. When I say you don't have to keep the law, that doesn't mean go murder, commit adultery, lie, cheat, and steal, and say you're a Christian and it'll all be okay. That's not what it is. When I say you don't got to keep the law, I'm saying the law will never make you righteous. It will never make you holy. It will only pour out my failures. Jesus Christ kept the law and said, if you put your faith and trust in me, I'll cover you with my keeping of the law. You become a law keeper. I make you righteous because he's righteous. He can cover me in his righteousness. And Jude told us that was his great joy to present you before the father without spot, no blemish that there will be a day when we're ushered in to the Lord's presence and Jesus will put his arm around our shoulder and take us before God, the father and the son is going to cover our failure. He's going to cover it all. And he's going to say when he takes us before the Lord, he's not going to say, Hey, here's all the times Jackie failed. Here's all the times Jackie messed up. He's covering it all. And I become perfect because he is. It's my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Now a life committed to faith and trust in Jesus Christ is going to walk how? It's going to walk like he walked. No? Didn't Jesus say, come follow me? So we're going to follow him. But rather than focusing on the, the list of Issues that we have in the law that says, here's where I fall short, here's where I fall short, here's where I fall short. Jesus just says, come follow me. So he changes my focus, not from keeping the law, but from following Christ. I'm going to walk where Christ walked. I tell you where he didn't walk, he didn't walk in lies. He didn't walk in murder. He didn't walk in adultery. So you cannot do all those things and say, I'm following Christ. No, you're not. You're following your own desires. Repent. 
and get back where the Lord is saying, follow me, follow me, follow me. The point is, where's your attention? If I put all my attention on the law, my tendency is to move in to self-righteousness. If I put all my attention on Christ, my tendency is to walk in love. Or I could just walk in judgment of what other people aren't doing. And that's the group Timothy's going to struggle with. That's a group that Paul is going to point his attention to. We're just going to verse 11. In accordance with the gospel, the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So Paul's saying, I need you to hold fast to the gospel. I need you to hold fast to the gospel. Now, in case you think I'm outside my head, read the rest of the chapter. What is it that Paul's going to shout? I am broken. I am the chief of sinners. Paul's not boasting on his ability to keep aspects of the law. What does he boast in? He boasts in the cross of Jesus Christ. He boasts in the Lord's ability to make him righteous, to change his life from the inside out. It it results in the change you want. If you think keeping the list of all the commandments in the Old Testament is going to change your life, the way following Christ will, it will not. But it will result in a changed life. It will result in a changed life that walks like Jesus walked. That does the things Christ did. Paul says, that's the gospel I want you to focus on. Not endless genealogies trying to prove your, your own worth or your own righteousness through your own acts. Timothy, you got to tell people not only to focus on the truth, but to correct the false. We can't do it on our own. That's why the gospel is good news, because it's something that Christ has done for us. Sometimes people ask me, well, should we not try? I would say, um, rather than trying to keep the law, let's try to follow Jesus. It seems like a better act, right? I'm going to, I'm going to follow you, Lord. I want to do what you do. I want to walk where you walk. I want to have the words that you spoke to people. I want to have the love that you had for sinners. I want to have the attitude that you had. Now I can divide my focus. And if I divide my focus, I become uh, irrelevant in either side. I'm focusing on this. I'm focusing on keeping this and, and the feast days and whatever other things I may be following. I can focus on all those things in an effort to make myself more appealing to the Lord. But the Lord says, here's what I want. This is what God said. Here's what I want. The Lord said, this is what I want. I want you to seek after me and I want you to know me. So focus on him. Paul is writing to Timothy saying, you got some people in there that are are distracting people. They're getting themselves into arguments and a lot of confusion about what they think they ought to be doing. And Paul says, I want you just to correct them and teach them to follow Jesus. Follow him. Because he's going to give us the example next week. Because following him will radically change your life. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to study your word, Lord Jesus, to open it. God, I thank you for the book of 1 Timothy and the challenges that it's going to uh, lay out before us. And I pray, Lord, as we 
receive your challenges as we hear your word. God, help us, teach us, guide us, lead us. That we might rightfully divide a word of truth. That whatever, whatever things we're following, whatever ideas we have in our mind, the one governing peace over it all is, is this what the whole counsel of God teaches? Is this how God's word is laid out? Is this how God's word is to be taught? Lord, may we just comprehend what is the height, the depth, the width, the breadth of the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. May we come to understand. May we not look for a shortcut or some quick answer or some answer on YouTube or anywhere else we might go. But rather, Lord, may we come to you. May we meditate. May we chew. May we say it's not about what I think or my ideas, Lord. I just pray that you would work a work, that you would do the job, that you would open my eyes, change my heart. Because you do say, Lord, that the test of genuine faith is love flowing from a pure heart out of good conscience. Critical spirit, that's not what I said. So, Lord, you do tell us there is a way to see the genuineness of your faith by the way we're able to to love one another. Not love sin. There's nothing in the Bible that says love people's sin. But we are supposed to be able to love one another. So, God, I just pray you by your spirit would do this perfect work in our hearts as we turn our eyes toward you at this time of year in this season when we celebrate your birth, even though we know you weren't born on December 25th. But as we celebrate your birth, Lord, open our eyes. May we look inside ourselves. May we say, am I holding fast to God's word or am I trying to accomplish something by my own work because works are good the bible says god has ordained good works that we would walk in them there's nothing wrong with good works but they don't save me they're evidence that god's working in my life the thing that walks in front so that we have the horse on the right side of the carriage is my faith and trust in jesus christ that makes me right And then what follows are the works God has ordained that I would walk in. So God, I pray you would do a perfect work that our eyes would be turned toward you. And Lord, if we're not, God, your word clearly calls us then to repent, change our direction, confess our sin, and we will find forgiveness. And Lord, you will place us on the path we need to walk. So, God, may we make sure, may we be right, because you have made us so. And, God, we give you the praise and the glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen. This baby boy who 
who's come to earth to bring us joy. And I just want to sing this song for you. It goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall. 